Welcome to the Point of View podcast, hosted as always by me, Douglas Fender, stop motion animator and cinematographer Stuart Gilmartin, two filmmakers from Edinburgh that have just a little bit of free time, a whole lot of ambition and just enough of an opinion to make this work. Today we're continuing our go-through of the Last of Us series on HBO Max. Currently we are up to episode 5 and 6. We missed episode 5 last week, but this week... We're going to go through five and six as one video, so lucky you. How are you doing, Stu? I'm good. Uh, tired today. Been a busy one, but yeah. Excited to finally talk about The Last of Us Episode 5, because you were lagging yeah. way behind, and then get on to Episode 6. I was half expecting you to come like knocking at my door, uh, saying, like, have you watched the damn episode yet? Have you watched the damn episode yet? But here we are. I watched Episode 5 yesterday. I watched Episode 6 uh, this afternoon in preparation for this podcast. So so six is still very fresh mm-hmm. in my head, still very fresh. I've I've had a little bit of time to reflect on episode five. Usually I do this just a couple hours after watching. So I guess we could uh, just go ahead and start at episode five. Yep. Makes um, sense. Well okay. I mean initially the the first thing that came to my head was was this gonna be yet another episode that's following people that aren't Joel and Ellie? When it first started, we had Henry and we had Sam, who in, in the show they've now decided to uh, turn him deaf. And I, I know you'll have a lot to say about him being turned deaf. We've talked about the potential for that before, and I'm pretty mm. sure it didn't get met. Um, but no, we we meet Henry, who this new antagonist, Kathleen, is determined to track down the sort of first quarter of the episode focuses on Henry and Sam as they're trying to survive out in the uh, this this world that The Last of Us is creating. Henry is the older brother of Sam and he's trying to look after him and make him feel safe. Sam is deaf, so maybe isn't as aware of what's going on around him, especially in this uh, hostile city that they seem to be in where there's a lot of gunfire in the background, there's, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of death, and Henry's kind of trying to shield Sam from that. But it wasn't so bad because my concerns were crushed pretty quickly because they encounter Joel and Ellie pretty quickly into the episode and then we get um, all four of them interacting and following the story uh, of what looked like it was going to be similar to The Walking Dead, I suppose. Everyone gathering together, so you were following a group of survivors instead of just Joel and Ellie. Your thoughts on Henry and Sam? Well, I, I mean, as you said, you, the, the episode began with Henry and Sam, but really it was pretty quickly a follow-on from the end of episode four when they catch Joel and Ellie in the room. And very quickly, obviously, they make it quite clear they're not there to do them any harm, because if they were, they would have done it by now, and they want to band together and get out because they witnessed Joel using the, the rifle early on and killing people, so they reckon he's quite handy. Um, Sam and Henry loved the characters. Uh, obviously, they were in the game, so it wasn't anything unexpected there. The, the The idea of Sam being deaf was new, but again, we knew it was coming, so it didn't take anyone by surprise. Um, we'll discuss a bit more about that, about that maybe later on, but certainly the introduction to Sam and Henry. Um, at that point, I'm sitting there, really liking where it's going and at that point I do remember thinking really enjoying this intro I think I even messaged you about 20 minutes in saying this is probably the best episode so far get watching it yeah <laughs> um, you did but yeah no, I, and I, again you see that little bit um, the humour carrying across with Joel and Ellie and Joel's you know 
bluntness and whatnot, which which continues to like continues to come through, with the way he was t- talking to Henry and uh, and Sam. But yeah, no, I, at that point I wasn't too stressed. I wasn't worried about where they were going to go with that. I, I felt like with Henry and Sam, because again, they're characters that appear and disappear in the game so quickly, there's not a whole lot they could have done with that unless they wanted to do, like you said, a whole new episode based on two characters that maybe don't do much for the story, which, as we said, as much as I love the episode, the Bill and Frank episode didn't do a whole lot to propel the plot forward. I still, I still feel like that. And the more we get into the show and the more episodes to see, it feels even more and more like a filler episode every episode we go. Yeah, yeah, I would actually agree with you. I would, I would agree with you completely. And the Henry and Sam, however, as you said, it starts reaching sort of more along the level of the game's storytelling. And I, I don't actually think that just because the storytelling in the games exists, that it has to be adapted unless it's done in an effective manner. And Henry and Sam's was. They well, added in the subplot in there, for Henry, though. I believe the showrunners and everything had said, if we can't do it better, leave it as it is. And the game was so good in the first place, there's not a lot they could have done better. And arguably, the Bill and Frank story, you could you could say, was it better or worse? It wasn't worse than the game wasn't better than the game in my opinion either it was just a nice episode but I don't know who knows there's a lot yeah. to come still and there's a lot that could change still so let's not just assume that they've only made that one one thing I would feel like if they're going well, to change stuff they're going to change point. you know especially as we get to the penultimate episodes um, and setting up for season two I think there's a lot that could be changed but we'll see you know but we're getting ahead of ourselves back to episode five well, yeah we're, we're we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves um, but uh, Henry has the subplot of being responsible for uh, the death of Kathleen's brother, mm-hmm. was it? Kathleen's brother? Yeah. Um, so that that gave a little bit more fuel to the fire and um, it, it gave him existing peril explaining why he's hiding and running around with Sam as opposed to joining these other a lot more capable groups, a lot more well-armed, safer. Um, Kathleen... We got a nice thing that I think The Last of Us has been doing this very well, actually. It's been doing it very, very well. It's it's not creating a super fine line between who's good and who's evil. Although Kathleen might come across as being um, quite evil because of her, her tone, her cold, callous, emotionless tone. It kind of seems like quite floaty, but ruthless underneath. She had that scene with... Um, uh, one one of the mercenaries whose name escapes me, where she was explaining why she had such a single-minded um, goal to find Henry and kill him. And watching it, even though she has been presented as the antagonist, you can understand why she's doing that. And the, the show's flirted with the idea of uh, Joel being rather horrible in the past and doing things he's not so proud of. And you're getting to see it from a villain's perspective as well. Although she was very clearly the villain, you could kind of sympathise with uh, her motivation blurring the lines between good and evil I don't think it flourishes with the idea that Joel's not a good person it's, it's, oh no it makes they, it very they, clear I said it right from the start we are not good people and they're not and that's the, I think the, the whole concept with the world that they live in is not a, a good place and people have to do things to survive and it's not necessarily good things and the big question really becomes is do good people how do they change when scenarios and circumstances force their hands to do things morally you wouldn't do it in a in a you know morally perfect society. So, I think the whole idea of that Joel 
is a good guy is not something that anyone going into this show, especially by now, knows that he's not. He's not a good guy. He is a survivor, but he's had to do some horrific things. And, and Kathleen's no different. She's a survivor amongst a group of people who have been treated like crap for too long. The brother who was a beacon of light in that gets killed um, or handed over to Fedra because of Henry in order to get medication for Sam. So you can, well, as much, as much as you can feel the justification in his actions to save his little brother, you know, it resulted in the death of this rebel group's leader. And now you've got the revenge story arc of Kathleen, which isn't in the game, but I understand why it's in the series to propel that element of the story forward. I don't think it did anything bad to the story. It, you know, allowed that to sort of flow out, I suppose. Um, and actually, this is probably one of the episodes that felt fairly close from memory to the way the game played out. Um, she was just there as a sort of driving force for the the um, sort of Henry and Michael, was it? The character's name? Her brother? Um, I, I'd be lying if I said I remembered Forget what her anyway, brother's name was. It all, but... it all helped move that sort of story along. So, um, But it, there you are. You're in a situation where you've got morally questionable ethics going on. So he's done what he could to save his little brother in a world where that can help is few and far between. So, and he says himself that he killed somebody, he's not a good guy, all the rest of it. It's like, but what would you do in that situation? Even now, in a, in a you know, in society as it is, you would do whatever you could to save somebody you cared about. Um, we, we're just unlucky that we don't have to betray somebody or turn somebody in to have, you know, in order to get that payoff. And of course, because there's no um, police state other than Fedra, uh, Kathleen decides, well, I'm going to, you become a brother, well, I'm going to kill you. So, you know, it's eye for an eye, and that's the, the sort of civil state that they live in. So, it's clear that nobody's really a good person. They're all just doing what they think they need to do to get by. And I don't think... But then, by the sounds of it, Kathleen had a screw loose, though, before this whole oh, scenario kicked absolutely. in. Absolutely. And that, and that screw loose has allowed her to be quite a prominent leader because um, people are able to follow her because the stuff she's trying to make happen has happened, whereas her brother was maybe a bit more talk, and by the sounds of it, nothing moved, really. So, um, yeah, so anyway, you know, we, we get a little bit of story there. We see how ruthless she is. We know that Sam and Henry are teaming up with Joel and Ellie to, to get away. Um, but, yeah, the when they finally arrived at the school, that's quite a, that's pretty much straight out of the game. And I thought that was quite a, an interesting scene when they see the two kids playing, like you know, they're kicking the ball about, and Henry's getting having fun, and Ellie's having fun, and but in the meantime, Joel and Henry are kind of hanging back and just being like, mm, "We shouldn't, we should be making less noise." <laughs> so they're they're constantly in fear of something being made aware of them being there, while the two kids are just being kids. Yeah, they're just being kids. There's, well. We'll get to this quite strongly come the end of the episode, but they they have to portray some form of innocence in contrast to the the lead characters. I think Ellie's done that, being quite jokey and light-hearted about even dangerous situations since episode one, taking things rather lightly as a kid would. Um, You mentioned getting to the school and going through the tunnels, as you say, straight from the game. I'm sure big fans of the game that were watching them walk through the tunnels and eventually get to the school must have been wetting themselves um, in anticipation for what was to come. Did you notice the Mandalorian drawn on the wall? No, I never noticed the Mandalorian, no. Yeah. <laughs> a nice little Easter egg. The Mandalorian was drawn uh, with kids' crayon oh, right. um, on no, the wall. Never saw it. 
But, um, you know, a lot of this episode was developing relationships and unfortunately getting us attached to characters that we weren't going to be with for very long. But um, I, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but we've talked about Henry and Sam. Uh, we've talked about Ellie and Sam, uh, Joel and Henry having their kind of dry conversations. Let, can we get to what everyone wants to hear about? That that climax to the episode. You, you know, one of the favourite parts of The Last of Us game, when I think of the game, it's probably the, the main memory I have, is that level where you're having to sneak around as the sniper is at the compound trying to take you out. Mm. And they've plucked that from the game as well. Yeah. Probably the most enjoyable level. And this is the show's rendition of that. Yeah, well, I um, mean, we get into that point, but I think there's, you know, if you go back to the, the school, for example, for a second, obviously you've got Ellie talking about comic books and things like that with, with Henry, uh, Sam, and Sam trying to teach her some sort of sign language things. And you see the two of them bonding, and it goes back to a point that Joel made about how, no, she hasn't got anyone who has to depend on her. And there's she is looking after Sam, who now kind of depends on her to kind of entertain her and keep her going. So she's starting to build that relationship of having to look after somebody. And with that comes a risk of loss. And this is what Joel's been kind of hammering on about people who depend on him and then them dying or whatever else and how that makes him feel. So Ellie's now starting to build that, that sort of, um, for lack of a better term, motherly instinct of looking after, um, or even sibling instinct of looking after uh, Sam, who's only eight in in the show, you know, so um, I think that's an important thing that comes in later on when we get to the point after the big climactic shootout. Now, to get to there, yes, that was one of the things from the game I remembered quite well was sneaking out with Joel with sniper rifle and all the rest of it, and trying to protect them as they're getting attacked. And I thought that was quite a, a cool epic scene. Now, the little girl clicker, a runner, or whatever yeah. you want to call them, she's from the school by the all accounts and was just creepy. Like, it's not about doll like kids being creepy. I don't know. I think it's that's just maybe just a horror thing. But I've never been worried freaked out by like Chucky or any that kind of stuff because I always thought it was kind of more funny than creepy. But when they move in a certain way, and I believe the actress who did it was like a gymnast or something and was able to like bend and contort herself in weird positions, like that was all done by a practical an actress doing that you know physical performance. And it was it was creepy, I thought. And Ellie's just stuck in the car with this little bendy, snappy, clicky thing. Right. Since you finally paused there, Stu. So that was a long talk. Since you finally paused. Just let me run downstairs, come back up. Right. Leave this leave it running. You, you, you're gonna leave me hanging on a point. <laughs>
Okay, I can go with the response. Hello. Oh. Try not fall asleep. I'm joking. Anyway, yeah. Right, go on then. <laughs> you yeah. just left me hanging on a point there. Yeah. Yeah, the body contortion thing is something that's sort of become a staple of horror since... Mm. God, I think back to Silent Hill, the the movie, all the nurses in the corridor. Japanese horror did a body. lot of that, though. You had a lot of people in Japanese horror films um, going up and down stairs and walking backwards and being all bendy and snappy and stuff. I remember watching... Uh, the Grudge. No, no, even before The Grudge, it was a film called The Proposal. No. Um, I forget what it's called now, but it was a dad that went on a dating thing to meet a, a new wife because he'd been raising his kid and after his mum died. I want to say The Proposal, but that's not what it's called. And um, I remember there's a scene there where there's things coming down the stairs and it's all like bendy and stuff like that. But yeah, I saw a lot of that in Japanese horror before I ever saw it in sort of, the sort of Western horror films that started doing things like that. Yeah, but I thought it was very effective here, and there's that enclosed danger as well. Mm. It's contorting, and there's no way out. You're just trapped within the confines of the car while all this chaos is going on outside. It's it's no safer outside. It's arguably much much more unsafe mm. on the outside. So this well, is when we, we we get proper, and this the season has been building too, because we've not really seen much of it as as the shows went on the kind of budget and production that HBO have, you finally got a fully budgeted, high-scale carnage with the infected and the survivors. There were humans flying around. There was infected running around. It was, it was, it was scary as hell. There was hundreds of them jumping out of that hole. And then one other thing came out of the hole. What was it, Stuart? Well, this is interesting because the bloater has always kind of confused me a little bit, right? Now, before I get on to that, I know when they did this, they used an actor in a suit to actually come out and, and be the be you know, do the, the physical part of the bloater. And then they've gone back in afterwards and on CGI to do whatever they wanted to do with it. And I saw a behind-the-scenes picture of the of the suit, and I didn't think it looked terrible. And I think when we add in lighting and all the rest of it, it probably would have been really good. So I'm curious why they felt they need to go back and then CGI it, or whether, they, or whether, or whether it was all just a motion capture thing. Because I did see they used a... You know the shiny ball thing to capture reflections, so um, maybe maybe that was always the plan. I don't know, but um, either way, it was great. I thought it was a really cool thing to see him come out and like do his thing. But isn't the whole point of the fungus that's leading, take the you know that's controlling the the body that it's moving around to try and take over hosts and assimilate them into their little collective. I, don't get I wanted to say this exact why thing. I know exactly what you're going to say. Well, it, it's come out and it's doing its own thing and it's ripping people's heads off and it's killing things that it would, should normally be trying to take over and make part of its network. Instead, it's just roaming around and smashing stuff and killing things and doing its own thing, which means it feels to me like it's got a mind of its own, which is in complete contradiction to being part of this networked fungus thing going on. So... That was the only thing about the bloaters that confused me about that, and I'm pretty sure in the game it's kind of samey, so they haven't strayed too far from it, but it is one thing that didn't make much sense then and now, but that's just my opinion, so. Yeah, you're right, it does. It makes for a great action sequence, though, yeah. that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I thought exactly what you were thinking, this wasn't an infected coming out here, this was this was like a tank, it was throwing haymakers, it was, <laughs> it was uh, snapping heads off. It, oh. it was it was targeting someone directly 
that was beyond other humans. Mm -hmm. It wasn't trying to grab the nearest host. It was seeing somebody that was attacking it and almost as a self-defense mechanism was charging straight towards them. Being um, the lead mercenary with Kathleen, who I really liked that guy. I can't remember his name, but I, I thought he seemed Marv, like quite a reasonable guy. I don't think his name was Marv. Marv. I don't think it was. But it reminded me of like Resident Evil. Because you had the zombies, they were mindless zombies, and they all just had one thing that would eat you, turn you into a zombie, right? And then they had the tyrant running around, doing its own thing and trying to kill you and all the rest of it. And it was like that kind of con you know, contrast between mindless zombie things flying around trying to just eat you versus something that's that's actually targeting you to kill you and for no other reason other than it wants to kill you um it doesn't want to make you one of them doesn't want to turn you into a zombie it just wants to rip you to pieces so you yeah. know that was the only thing about the bloater that i felt a bit unsure about because i'm again i think in the game it's much the same it, it targets you it chases you about and it tries to kill you rather than you know when it does get you i believe it just like rips your head off and you know, it kills you quite brutally as opposed to like, you know, affecting you with the cordyceps. But then going back to what you're saying about the car, you know, you've got this scene where like Sam's running around and he's, you know, nervous and Ellie's trying to get in and save him and stuff. And this is where I feel they really missed the trick with the idea of him being deaf. Because I know it's been done before and things, but it would have been so cool to see all that carnage and the, and the, you know, the mental firefight going on and the runners coming flying out and all that stuff going on and having all that noise and the gunfire and all that kind of stuff and suddenly just cut to silence and you're getting Sam's perspective and he's looking around and he's panicking and he can't hear anything and suddenly somebody grabs him and it's Ellie and she's trying to pull him away and suddenly you're backing all the noise and the mayhem and, and it's just going nuts and then something, and you know they could have done something so cool with that to build tension and really really use that to create a fear element and, and it would have been a great use of that death mechanic within the, the that they've created in there but they didn't do that, and I just felt they really missed a the trick there because then yeah, there was right. no chance after that to do anything with it. And yes, no. we do move. I mean, maybe because naturally move on to that point now, we get into where finally Joe, Ellie, Sam, and Henry have taken cover of having f you know fled the battlefield after Kathleen gets killed by the child clicker runner thing. Um, and you know, as we know from the game, Henry's been bitten. And he's having this conversation with Ellie. And it's interesting, again, because it contrasts between Joel and Henry having their conversation. And then you've got Henry and Ellie having what would be a very adult conversation about fear and being abandoned and feeling lonely and not wanting to be, you know, all these all these kind of things. But they're doing it with a little kid's toy. Whilst he's deaf and I'm trying to communicate that and she's trying to communicate back why she feels certain things or why she does behaves a certain way. So it's interesting because he's using a kid's toy to tell a really adult-based conversation, um, which, again, I think it shows that these, these children shouldn't be living these lives. They shouldn't be having to have these conversations. Um, and I think that, that for, me, for me, was quite a moving moving point. And that was good, good use of the deaf element to have that conversation rather than it just being them sitting, talking, which is what it was in the game. But it didn't do enough with the deaf mechanic in the in the um, the show to really justify changing changing the character to a deaf character. Um, however, we do know, obviously, and if you want to jump in before we move on at this point, you know, now's probably your, your time. Do you have an opinion on, on the stuff to this point? Well, yeah, what you were talking about initially with the whole <laughs> Sam thing, you, you kept calling him Henry there, Sam, yeah, you know the I mean. ears. Um, you're right, being in complete silence and just hearing that sort of uh, the ringing of the ears that you've seen in so many other shows just hearing the ringing with suspense and then somebody grabs them, you're thinking, oh no, he's been grabbed by an infected, but it cuts to it being Ellie and uh, she's taking responsibility for young Sam and running off. That that would have worked really well. 
the conversation with uh, conversation with Sam and Ellie inside the room was delivered with such a beautiful innocence that only like child characters or child um, actors would be able to deliver. It, it couldn't be worse for them. Like he is infected, he is going to die. He could potentially attack you. He could potentially attack Henry and Joel. We are all in extreme danger, but it's dealt with in such a gentle, innocent way where Ellie truly believes that her blood might mm. actually um, save Sam. The deafness thing, however, uh, it gave an interesting little progression to Sam just sitting there all night and he didn't turn around and attack Ellie, presumably because he hadn't uh, he hadn't yet turned when he was facing forward and once he became infected, he couldn't hear anything, so he didn't sense that anybody else was in the room, so he just sat there until a target was known to him. Well, that's what I was going to get to, yeah. Like the whole okay. him being deaf there and facing away. When, when Ellie fell asleep, he couldn't hear that she was in the room with him, and because he had no reason to um, turn around and look for her, because he's, he's you know, been taken over by the, the the virus thing, the disease, the fungus, then um, you know that, that created the element of him being able to stay in the room with her and not attack her. Um, interesting point, though, that I, I was just discussing with someone the other day about the, the, the runners and things, is that they're taken over and they're not in control of their bodies, but their mind is still intact and they're aware of what's going on, but they can do nothing to stop it, which reminds me of in the game, <coughs> excuse me, when you go in a room and you'd hear runners and clickers crying and, like, saying like I don't want to do this and panic and seeming scared and upset and it just dawned on me when I was having this conversation that actually that would be even more horrific being inside and able to witness everything that's going on and having no control over your body as you're killing people and doing all these horrible things so the question and you know Sam asked the question as well do you think the people inside are, are still there when an Ellie doesn't know the rest of it so when Sam's attacking Ellie I think that strengthens the aspect that he's attacking her He's not in control of that, you know, ability to stop that. But he's there. He's probably aware. Seeing what's happening. So when, you know, he has to be taken out um, by Henry, you can understand uh, the the trauma that Henry's now facing when he's realised everything. Again, it goes back to the, the Bill and Frank scenario. Everything he was living for and fighting for, which was to save his brother, is now nullified. It's gone. So what does he do? Game over. But that was like the the biggest gut punch that the show probably could have uh, could have thrown at you as well. It's not just that it's not just that he failed in saving Sam. He had to pull the trigger to put him down, which would have amplified how traumatic that was by uh, numerous values. But you know the beautiful thing they did about that when he pulled the trigger, they were on Ellie. So there she is, looking him dead in the eye as he blew his brains out. That how oh she was great how, she was great how horrific is that to, for her to just see that the way she saw it and at the end obviously when they bury the, the two bodies and he shows Masori on his little toy you know the talking thing and puts it on the grave and Joel just kind of looks at that and looks at her and uh, you know it, I thought that was just a wee you know, camera just cut out hang on right at the end of the fucking thing second I could cut in because I know kind of where you're going with it yeah because you, you I, I could cut in it's already cut out and I've turned it back on. Oh. <laughs> All right, hang on. Am I rolling yet? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Jump in there then. Yeah quite, a, yeah, quite a beautiful moment. And it's one of those moments where, um, when I say beautiful, I don't mean like uh, lovely. No. I mean, in, in a dark way, quite uh, beautiful and quite...
quite um quite emotional. But it's where Ellie kind of Grew takes up. the lead. She says to Joel, yes, she she says to Joel, we have to go and then keep walking. So she's developing some form of um hardened awareness mm. to the what what it means to survive in this world. And now she's finally stopping being so silly and jokey about everything. I think um, very few words were said. She tells Joel to go, and then the episode ends. I, I thought it topped off what, at the time of watching it, I thought was the best episode so far. Yeah, and I would agree. I think it showed an element of her maturity and growing up and having that understanding what it is like to be depend, you know, have someone depending on you and fail them. And I think that's when she's start, starting to now realise from the adult's perspective and the loss that can come from that. And so... Yeah, and at the time, I, I was in agreement that it was the best episode thus far, um, which brings us nicely on to episode six. But yeah, I watched Last of Us episode six this afternoon, as I said earlier, um, quite enjoyed the episode. Uh, the episode opens with Oscar-nominated Graham Greene as the um, the old native carrying the rabbits, and he enters his house out in the middle of nowhere to find his uh, very amusing wife uh, just sitting there after making soup for Joel and Ellie. Uh, I, I really wish we could see more of these two characters. I, I thought that opening scene was hilarious, the way that they were interacting with Joel. Yeah, I, I, thought, I think it brought a nice bit of humour in. Cause it's, it's kind of a dry humour. Um, it was a nice change of pace for the start of the, of the, uh, the episode because I, I did get the feeling it was going to be the episode it was you know, meeting Tommy and all the rest of it, and I knew it was going to be an emotional one. So they started off with a sort of like we we laugh and we giggle, and um, the the way the wife reacts to stuff. You know, he's having a go because she's made her captor soup, and he's like, "Yeah, but it didn't hurt me." <laughs> so it's like that makes it okay. Um, but no, that that was that was quite good fun. And then obviously when Ellie leaves, she steals the rabbit, which I think is interesting too because obviously um, she has to then hunt later. You know, well jump ahead again but yeah you know as the game progresses she becomes she starts hunting herself for supplies and stuff like that and i think there's a well-known scene that's now a meme where you see the wee rabbit and it's popped its head up and it's doing its own thing and then ellie kills it with an arrow and then some girl was crying in the uh in the meme that gets posted about but yeah back to the, the point um yeah it was, it was it was a fun we scene to start with and when you can I mean they moved on from there and obviously they get ganged up on by the um, townsfolk at the dam, the the whole story then changed. Um, yeah, you know, the location of the of the of where they find Tommy and everything else happens in the in the village, which I think is just setting up season two, because they we know they go back there at the end of the game, and that's where season season two starts. So I think they're starting to establish that town is existing. So season two can then just roll right into it without having to do any real explanation. So yeah, I think that's I, just a pre, pre, you know, foreshadowing of season two. Didn't they? I think there was a scene in the episode where they were having a drink in the Tipsy Bison, which I think is quite a prominent location in the games as well. Well, before that, um, you mentioned drink when Ellie and um, Joel were camping out before beforehand, before they met the, you know, the the folk from the village. Um, he's drinking his whiskey, and she's sitting there, and he asks, she asks for some. And he gives her some, and it's like that sort of moment when a parent gives her kid alcohol for the first time, um, and uh, you know, dad gave the daughter a wee drink of whiskey, and she's like, takes a swig, and she's like, nope, <laughs> didn't, didn't like it, hands it back, and I, I have a, I have a memory. Hmm? 
I think what she says is that it, it, it's still horrible. So she yeah. had actually had a drink She's before. before so. Yeah. But it was funny because I had a moment with my phone, sort of my step somewhere. I was drinking whiskey one night and he asked to try some. And I was like, sure. And I gave it to him and he <laughs> took it in. And was like, just looked at me and straight away was like, nope. It's just spat it in the sink. I was like, yeah, it'll grow on you. Um, yeah, a little but, callback to do with that um, scene where they were sitting, where Ellie ended up taking watch. A little callback to this podcast. I said, I think on episode one or maybe even episode two, when you were talking about The Last of Us, you started talking about Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. And I said only you could turn a review of The Last of Us into a, a mini-review of Of Mice and Men. And then Ellie asks Joel what he would do if this world was all over and he was just free to do what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he says the exact thing that the characters in Of Mice and Men were trying to do. He just wanted to have a little ranch and live off the fat of the land. And as soon as I, I popped when I watched that, <laughs> I was thinking, Stu must be loving this. Uh, it's an, yeah, another... Uh, similarity to of mice and men but anyways yeah uh, joel and ellie take off to find tommy and the fireflies um which kind of sounds like some 1960s rockabilly band and they have to cross the river of death um as you say they cross the river of death after finding out that the one that they previously crossed was not the river of death and they get um surrounded and that scene with the dog was mm. quite tense. Uh, I, I don't know why the dog didn't sense it. I don't know if you can explain that to me, but the, the dog didn't sense Ellie. Because she isn't infected in the same way as the infected are. She, her body is fight, fighting it off, so she has and the, the infection in her, but she also has an element of antibodies, so the dog's not detecting the same strain or virus that it's finding in the, you know, the infected, which is why mm. it doesn't react to her, because she doesn't have that same strain that it's sniffing out for so but it, it's it, and, and this comes it's played back later on in the episode when, when Joel's talking to Tommy but you can see Joel in, a, in one of those situations where he just there's nothing he can do because if he reacts they kill them if he does nothing maybe she dies because the dog rips her to pieces and there's something if you've experienced a situation like that before where you're literally hand you're standing there and you want to do something but you can do nothing and you know something horrific could, or is it you know, or possibly about to happen? That's it's um, paralyzing, and it's not necessarily because you're you're scared. It's because you know that the outcome of you you reacting here could result in everybody being killed, and you just don't know what to do. And I think you know that was very clear in that situation. I mean, here's her laughing and stuff like that. There's that wee cute moment where she's playing with the dog, and uh, you can see how his whole body is just kind of sighs a wee bit of relief there because he knows right, well. She's not going to get ripped to shreds by a, an angry dog, so you can see that that instinct of Joel and the protectiveness coming in, and um, I know it comes back later on. We'll, we'll get to it, but certainly there's uh, that father instinct is much stronger now. And I think it's also important to mention that the, this takes place. There's a bit, there's a bit of a passage of time between episode five and episode six. There's like a few months I think have swung by here, so they've been together longer now. They've, they're really starting to bond, um, and that's important with the conversations that come later on between Joel and Tommy. Yeah, and see, even I thought that was actually something that they didn't do too well. I'm not going to just mindlessly praise it. I loved the episode, but I thought explaining that the passage since the death of Sam and Henry has actually been three months, watching it, like if I hadn't looked up that it was three months on, I would have thought it was just the next again day. I, I didn't think 
I, yeah, they didn't I even mention it. Did satisfied they at the start? with that? No, I don't, no, they didn't. It, suddenly it was snowy. But I mean, let's be honest. We live in Scotland. It could rain tomorrow, be sunny the day after, snow the day after that. So weather can change really quickly. So whether it's three months or three days or whatever, I mean, you could travel to different parts of the country and you have different all kinds of weather. So yeah. I don't think it's that is it's one of your points you like to complain about that actually doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to labour that point, that's for no. sure. Because there, there's a lot to talk about this episode. So yeah. if, if we could get to the little safe haven that they managed to get into, a big bang of Deadwood off that. don't know if you ever watched Deadwood. I did, yeah. But of course, another HBO-produced show. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of reminded me of that. It, it, that's exactly what I was going to say. And it also has the same composer. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Is it Gustavo Santoella or something like that? That that similar music that would be playing in Deadwood, and mm. as they were walking through the uh, this safe haven, that's the first thing that came into my mind. I'm like this is just like a modern Deadwood, but something I really liked so far in the show when they've been in situations where they have to find people or get something. There's been a little bit of a drawn out search for it. I liked that as soon as he got to um, where Tommy was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. He's he met right up with them immediately. He, there was none of this. They so easily could have went with the whole. Oh, Tommy's actually out hunting. He was supposed to be back mm-hmm. two days ago, and we don't know where he is. And it became a big search for Tommy. I liked that he he was just there. He was just. I think there. that's part of season two's opening thing. And I think they're going to Tommy's been hunting, and they need to go find him. I think that's how that all comes about. But so that that's for me. Not you know, I can't remember. It's been a while. But so anyway, you're right. It's it's great that they arrived yeah. and Tommy's there. They didn't have to do the whole. Oh, he'll be back in two days, and in the meantime, you know, they're treated like scum because they don't know if they're good or bad and the only reason why they get away with it is because Tommy's wife and I forget the actress's name and I couldn't I couldn't picture why I recognised her face but she's from True Blood it's Rotina Wesley uh, yeah she's yeah, True from Blood. True Blood or yeah. in this show as I, I would be referring to her referring right. to her from now on Diet Michonne yes well that's the thing too I remember what I saw it in the trailer I thought oh Michonne's in this that's cool and I thought well, yeah, that's not Michonne so anyway but yeah it's certainly um that's a that's a, a change though I believe from the game because I think the character in the game is like a blonde white chick so um, and now she's not but okay, who cares <laughs> no I don't have a problem with it it was just so striking how much it was similar with the the dreads the clothing style in a post apocalyptic world on a horse I was like <laughs> that's Michonne it's like if you were to buy Michonne off of Wish you would get this character and I, I didn't particularly care for the character um Maybe she'll do something a little bit better. But then we start getting to the, the nitty-gritty drama, which th- this episode was full of just sort of emotional drama between characters, uh, mm-hmm. family or Joel and Ellie. Um, there's probably bits you might want to reel back on, but Joel and Tommy talk about how they murdered people. Again, this has been brought up many times in the show, the fact that they were bad people. It's been referenced before. But uh, again, sticking to that whole blurred line between the good guys and the bad guys. So I, I thought the conversation between Joel and Tommy was pretty good. I'm pretty sure it's uh, rather faithful to the game as well. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we talked about it earlier on about how nobody's really a good guy and nobody's really a bad guy. It's, it's the old Western cliche of white, you know, was good and black was bad and grey was the guys in between. And then you had Spaghetti Westerns which flipped it all on its head and, you know, good guys were, bad guys were white and all the rest of it. But the um, I think the element here is that everybody everything is great there's no it's not black and white anymore it's very much a case of everybody just does what they have to do good bad whatever it's, it's irrelevant it's guys stay alive and what do i do what do i need to do to stay alive so 
you know, they're talking about it, and I think, you know, doesn't Tommy say, you know, they don't judge you for these things, because, you know, I did it too. We, we did these things. It wasn't just you you doing it. Um, and I'm sure everybody that's in that society has probably had to do something similar to, in order to stay alive. So, um, and, you know, they say themselves, they've got they've got raiders that come in and they kill them and dump them by the river, and then you've got infected that, they, that come in and they dump them by the river. And there's probably plenty of times raiders have come in and they maybe aren't bad, they're in the same position that they're just trying to find food to survive and all the rest of it, and they're being wiped out because the the communes, which is another joke that was made, um, is more powerful. Um, and then you've got Tommy, who's a former military guy, who's now a communist, and he didn't, it's like he didn't realise when Joe was like, oh, so you're a communist now? And he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, well, we are a commune, so yeah. <laughs> so I just thought it was quite funny. And there's, there's Tommy at the background being a bit like, oh, shit, yeah, I'm a, I'm a communist now. <laughs> I don't know if you clocked that or not. I, I mean, I, I clocked it. I didn't stick with it. Maybe like how you yeah, did. Was funny. Oh, my camera's cut off. Two seconds. Um, <clears throat> I did... Um, I did clock it. I just didn't stick with it quite the same way that yeah, you have. I thought it was funny, so I, you know. Anyway, but yeah, so they have that conversation, and I think you know, for the first time, you see Joel let his guard down because he's with his brother, and you actually see how emotional and how he's always holding himself back, and he just lets it all out because through the episode, Joel's been having panic attacks, or you know, and you can see him starting to really stress. The closer he gets to delivering Ellie you know, what, what, you know he's, what, he wants to know what's happening next like, where do we go from here and he's now bonding with Ellie and building that connection with Ellie that like, he maybe doesn't want to leave her or abandon her or just drop her off and go away and these are all starting to play with him and you can see that you know his own mind is starting to like betray him as he starts to like almost crumble under the pressure of it all and then he puts it on the you know all on the table with, with Tommy about how he's you know scared and he doesn't want to let her go and uh, when the dog was going to, was you know, he didn't know what was going to happen and he didn't know what to do and all these various things. And for the first time, you see Joel as vulnerable, which I think is really an important pivotal moment in, in the series. Yeah, he drops the facade completely. And Pedro Pascal did a phenomenal job. I think it must be quite difficult for an actor to deliver that kind of performance where you're appearing vulnerable and you're having to do the kind of higher pitched voice with tears. Uh, but I thought he, he pulled it off really well. Um, uh, kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Walter White's breakdown after he'd gotten beaten up by Jesse. You know, he's all bruised and he's talking to his uh, son in mm -hmm. his house and he's having a little cry while he's trying to explain everything that went wrong. Um, and it seems to... It's, it's building a story arc to to Joel. The, the story arc of not thinking he can actually keep up with uh, what he has to do in order to survive in this world. Whereas... Previously, he was the opposite of that. He was just the person that did what you have to do to survive in this world, and he was good at it. It's, it's opening the idea that maybe he is old. Maybe he needs protected too, but he is old. He is tired. Um, mm -hmm. The weight well, of the, everything he's had to do has um, broken him down. Um, very much seems like a broken man. And um, I'll, I'll let you make your point before I move on to the next scene because it's probably one of the best scenes in the show. Yeah. Definitely one of the best scenes in the show, but then it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a really good scene followed by another really good scene. But in this scene, I think it's important too that he mentions that he couldn't handle the guy that Ellie eventually had to shoot. Now, while she didn't kill him, you know, he did in the end, he points out that, he, you know, back in his day, that, he, that would not have been a problem. 
and um, you know he's as you say he's, he's and he does point out in, in the episode with Henry and Sam when he makes a point about he's fifty five or something and calls Elia a, a wee cheeky you know um, because she's making fun of the fact he's old so I think you are getting these little bits through there that let you know Joel's um, struggling he's, you know to keep up because he's not a young fit man anymore he's he's you know the time's catching up with him. And he's done a lot of bad things. He's probably done, you know, had a lot of things done to him too that his body's starting to fail him a bit. And now he's having panic attacks about the whole situation. And so mentally, you know, his physical body's starting to lag and now mentally he's starting to lag behind as well. So, yeah, I think it was nice to see Joel vulnerable, open human. And, and properly there for, with Tommy. So Nice to see him human. And, mm. of course, he makes the decision that Tommy should take Ellie yep. the rest of the way. <coughs> Excuse me, and then we get what I was actually referring to is probably the best scene in the show, and it was one of the best scenes in the game as well, where Joel and Ellie actually argue because Ellie wants to continue her journey with Joel with and Joel, not with yeah. anyone else because and this is her relationship has grown with Joel. Yeah, and this is what I mean when there's a best scene followed by a better scene. So yeah, um, because obviously it ends with. Tommy saying, well, I've got a kid on the way. I need to be smarter about what I do now. And just because your life stopped doesn't mean mine does. And that's all reference to the fact that when Sarah died, Joel's daughter, he just stopped. Like, Joel essentially died with her. And what you're getting now is just the sort of, all the, you know, vicious, angry, bitter man that just doesn't care. And along came Ellie and changed all that. And, there, and so now he's just trying to kind of, and and I think, as we move into that scene, you know they have that um, that conversation, and they have the argument back and forward where she's like, you know, I, I want to go with you, and he's giving up, you know, all about, um, let's say she's sorry about his daughter, and that he's she's lost people too, and he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like everybody that's ever loved me, has left me or died, so how can you say that Sandra and say she doesn't understand loss? She, she does, of course she does. Um, I think this lost. scene was um, almost almost shot for shot and line for line a carbon copy of the game because it works so well in the game why would you change that part it was emo so, it's emotionally effective the points that they make are true the dialogue is great both the actors did a phenomenal job mm -hmm. in playing that scene I, I i was feeling a little bit um a little bit tight-throated um when listening to it uh and in my memory the scene was longer um i, I guess I, I was just paying such a, a close amount of attention to it that um it just it just went by just went by like that mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll be honest shortly following this scene where Joel and Ellie have their argument um, you have Joel actually making the decision that okay you have a choice mm -hmm. and she chooses Joel and they take off together no on the horse though. That's important no hesitation too. no hesitation but now I might be in the minority here okay and don't worry I'm not going to say she should, she should have picked Tommy or any nonsense like that but I might be in the minority, but when they left together after that was decided, I think that should have been the end of the episode. I don't think they needed the peril at the end of the episode because th this was very much an episode about the relationships between the characters and the developments there. And it has kind of ended the episode, or should have ended the episode on the point that Joel is, at this point in the story, it's it's been made effectively clear that Joel's actually becoming more attached to Ellie than he is the cause. He he cares more about the person than the, the cure. Mm -hmm. it, it, 
uh, I, I don't know if you would agree or disagree, but definitely to me it seems like he cares about Ellie more than the fact that um, she potentially has the cure. There's a proper father-daughter feeling like that they established with a gun scene that came after they left. Like it, it felt like they were finally starting to bond. I don't think that they needed um, a scene of peril to follow. So I, w- I would disagree only because okay. I know what comes next is quite a significant growing angle for Ellie and I think by ending the show the way they've ended it they allow the episode that comes next to really focus on the time that passes by as Ellie has to sort of fend for herself because Joel's incapacitated and I think that's you know that's important that we get that time with Ellie and the the story that plays out here where we see her being becoming capable and in some ways I'm in Joel so um I, I think they had to end that the way they did to allow us the time in the next episode to really explore Ellie's development. Um, now, a couple of points, though, to go back to that. Obviously, the hunting scene is a nice wee scene between them where she's like, can't get it right and, you know, shoots the target and that the moment between them when it's nice. And yeah, as you say, it's the, that's that father-daughter thing. Which is funny because even just five minutes beforehand, he's like, yeah, you're not my daughter and I'm definitely not your dad. And then, but that strikes me of like having that conversation, you know, when you have like stepchildren, like, well, you're not my dad anyway. It's like, well, you're not my son, no, 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 whatever. And it's like, but really, you care deeply for each other. Like, but you, but that's, but you know that that's the kind of thing that just hurts when you say it or, or, yeah. or, or receive it. And so it's, it's like watching a stepdad having a moment with, with a stepdaughter and they're just saying what they know is going to hurt each other. But really, they care. And that's when the next morning when he comes out and he's like, right, you've got a choice. And without for no hesitation, she's like, come on, then. let's stop messing about. But, you know, they get to the, the city and then they get chased by the, you know, the raiders or whatever you want to call them, scavengers. And uh, I think it was done well because you've just had Joel sit there saying about how back in the day he was capable and, you know, these kind of guys wouldn't have got the jump on them. And there they are in this situation where Joel's handily handling these guys, you know, and he's he's got one guy and he's, you know, thrown around the place and... The only thing is that the baseball baseball bat that got broken on the tree, he just didn't even click that the guy stabs him with it. Um, and then, of course, he, he does the stupid thing, which is pull it out, which seems like a daft thing to do, especially, I would, I would assume Joel would know better than that, but hey-ho. Um, and then, you know, off they, off they run, and there's Ellie firing back at them with the gun while they, they fly off, and then, obviously, he collapses, and then she's begging him to get up, and it ends on that sort of real moment of... Um, fear and anguish for her where this guy that she really cares about is potentially dying there right in front of her and I think that sets up the next episode perfectly and so I would disagree with the way you think that didn't work No, uh, it's it's not that I think it didn't work, I thought that what followed them leaving um, was actually very good but I would have preferred if the whole Joel getting stabbed thing could have been left as that maybe uh, the, the pre-opening credit scene of the next again episode um, it it just seemed for, for once could they have ended an episode on a positive note of them heading back out and wondering what's going to happen next and I don't know if you, if you know this online there seems to be a lot of people that haven't played the game or haven't done much research on the game because a lot of these like Last of Us spore posting pages and stuff like that the, the kind of meme posting places um, for the, the casual fans they seem to think Joel's dead they're they're posting like um, images about uh, Joel's death scene and what's Ellie gonna do now that Joel's dead. Like you, you know how this works, right? 
you know that there was an advert when the episode ended that shows you that he's actually still with us. But <laughs> some people genuinely seem to think that that was the end of Joel. And that, you know that, that would have been like... People have poor. probably Googled Joel, right? And it's come up with deceased because, <laughs> you know, spoiler, like he dies in season two, um, right at the very beginning of it. So they're probably just assuming that that's that. But, um, and, I, and annoyingly, I've seen Joel's death scene from season two all over the internet. And it's not the same scene at all. So if I'm confused if people are believing that is like the series version of that particular scene because, um, but this is the thing. And, and to your point, there's only three episodes left and they have to get to the hospital with Ellie at some point. And Joe has to have that dilemma where he goes back for her and then that all that has to play out. They haven't got the time anymore to really, as you say, carry that forward into the next episode. I think if there was another episode or two, they could have done that and that would have made sense. But they really need to now start really picking up the pace and moving things forward because there's still a fair bit to happen for both the characters and the story to get to where they get to for the end of episode nine in order to set up season two, which is also a time jump because Ellie's much older and Joel's much older again and um, Abby and the characters from you know uh, season one who we may or may not see in season two are older and all the rest of it. So it's, um, I think... Nine episodes are starting to, you know, catch up quickly, and there's a wee bit still to, to really play with and explore. So I can kind of see why they did what they did, but it didn't really bother me. I think it allows the next episode to purely focus on Ellie's development as she has to stand her own two feet um, and try and keep Joel alive until he can get better to continue their journey onwards. Looks like it's going to be a great episode as well. Yeah. Really, really looking forward to watching it. I've, I've remember, loved the show so much. Yeah, but I, I want it to that. end. <laughs> I just want. It. I know how the. I know how season one w- will end because I've played the game. I really want them to just get to that point because I can't wait to see how the show deals with that. And I, I just want them to get to that so that I can see it because um, I've been anticipating it since episode one. So um, I just have to be a little bit more patient. Three weeks. That's all it's going to take. Three weeks. Yeah, and. Uh... I remember the next part of the of the, the series in the game has been one of the memorable parts of the game as well that stayed with me. Um, once I don't remember, you know, scene for scene, I can remember that this part of the game playing out well. So I'm excited to see what they do with that in the next episode as well. And it's all leading to the Fireflies and Joel handing Ellie over at the hospital. And, uh, you know, we know where that goes. So I'm really keen to see what they do with that and the characters who maybe we'll see before season two starts. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. So I think that's us for the day, yeah? Yeah, where can people follow us, Doug? They can follow us on TikTok. They can follow us on Facebook. They can follow us on Instagram. There's an RSS feed for this as an audio-only podcast. Links are all down in the description. But uh, keep watching the channel. Subscribe, like, leave a comment. Let us know subjects that we should cover in the future. Anything life or cinema related, preferably cinema. That's my forte, and I know it's yours as well. We've got videos coming out later on this week. I think our upload schedule is pretty hectic this week. The upload schedule is something coming out just about every day. Um, And, of course, we have a (laughs) a lovely interview with uh, Corporal Cliff Purvis, who was Queen's Own Highlanders and uh, Royal uh, Royal Army Medical Corps. Uh, that should be coming on Friday as well. That's if people have made it to this point in the video and are actually interested in a military interview. But until we get to that stage, thank you for watching the video. Links are in the description if you want to follow us on other forms of uh, social media. 
Um, so it's a goodbye from me. It's a goodbye from him. <laughs> you did it. You actually <laughs> did it. Well, we talked about it last time, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. The end. On that note. <laughs>